You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War. This is our first episode in our Spanish Civil War interview series. In the decades before the Spanish Civil War, Spain had experienced a very rocky political period. The Spanish economy had been somewhat precarious even before the economic upheavals of the First World War and the resulting economic booms and busts of that war would set the country up for a tumultuous 1920s and 1930s. There were many different political beliefs present in Spain at this time, and one political ideology that would gain a lot of traction within Spain was anarchism. In the following interview, I chatted with Dr. James Yeoman to discuss why the Spanish anarchist movement was so well supported within Spain, and how the role of anarchist groups both within Spain and as viewed by international anarchists played such an important role in the years before the Civil War. One concept that Dr. Yeoman and I discuss quite a bit in this episode is anarchism. And what I realized after I recorded the interview was that anarchism is perhaps a political ideology that is not widely known. I think if I were to ask most people to tell me what an anarchist believes, the responses would be something close to chaos. I think that's kind of the, the denotation of the term that we have in modern society. That is not what the capital A anarchism, the political ideology, is, though. It is a leftist political philosophy which dates back to the ideological divide experienced in the International Working Men's Association during the 1860s. At that point, the differences in opinions between Mikhail Bakunin and other communist leaders like Karl Marx would result in a schism. A full description of anarchism is really beyond the scope of this podcast, but anarchism is at the very far left of the political spectrum. There are many nuances to anarchist beliefs and multiple different schools of thought, but at their core, there is a belief that the state, as a structure, is not necessary or desirable. In general, it sees the state and its constructs, like the police and the military, as just avenues for the oppression of the worker. Instead, anarchism focuses on self-organizing groups, collectives, and workers' organizations, and these would appear in Catalonia during the war. It also believes that the military and the police uh, have no place in society, and instead it relies on things like militias and, and self-policing to sort of defend society. We'll also see many anarchist militias in the early parts of the Spanish Civil War. This clashes with, and was one of the causes, of the original break between communism and anarchism, and it would be a breach that would be very important to the story of the Spanish Civil War. The anti-statist views of anarchists is what would cause some groups to refuse to even participate in government, 
although others would collaborate with the Spanish Republic during the Civil War. There would be disagreements about this collaboration, with some anarchist leaders preferring to work with the Republic in the hopes of creating a more promising future, while others would claim that such collaboration was a direct rejection of anarchist principles. Another term that is at times used to refer to the anarchist party, especially in Spain during this time, is libertarian. I point this out specifically for my American listeners. The Libertarian Party in the United States should not at all be confused with the anarchist left libertarians of the Spanish Civil War. Anarchists would have some pretty strong disagreements, <laughs> to say the least, with many of the policies of the modern-day American Libertarian Party. I hope this clears up any confusion. I think political terms and philosophies can be very confusing, especially as the meaning of those terms can change over time, and especially how we use those terms within society can change over time, either naturally or as a purposeful misrepresentation of certain ideologies that some groups may disagree with. Without further ado, here is the interview with Dr. James Yeoman. Hello everyone and welcome to the Spanish Civil War interview series. Today I'm here with Dr. James Yeoman of the University of Sheffield. Dr. Yeoman has researched and written about the rise and evolution of anarchism in Spain in the years and decades before the Spanish Civil War. Dr. Yeoman, how's it going today? Good, thanks firstly. Uh, yeah, really nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me onto your show. Okay, excellent. Um, we'll just jump right in here. Um, anarchism had a strong presence in Spain from the mid-19th century or so. Can you explain how the movement grew and spread in Spain during a period in which I imagine national governments were a bit hostile to the whole idea? Yeah, they certainly were. Um, so I think if we think about anarchism as a political movement and not as a kind of broader philosophy, which sometimes the two get kind of intermingled. If you think of it as a political movement, really we're talking about the mid 19th century. And really, I think it helps to view it as a, an ideology that stems out of socialism. It's a form of socialism, which people might be more familiar with, rather than this kind of alien kind of, or, you know, might just think of it in terms of a version of that. And there were anarchists involved in what was called the First International, or the International Working Men's Association, of which Karl Marx was a very uh, prominent figure, as was uh, Mikhail Bakunin, who's kind of seen as the, the Marx of, of the anarchist movement, if that makes sense, a kind of key figure. And really what anarchists at this point, and you can see this kind of throughout, <clears throat> felt was similar to socialism, they wanted similar ends, you know, an equal society, um, you know, things kind of uh, held in common, these kind of things. However, they differed from other types of socialists when they had this hostility to all forms of authority, really. Um, they, they didn't like political parties, they didn't like um, the church in particular, and they didn't like the state. So they, they, they didn't like things which told people what to do, in a sense, um, which that made them quite distinct within this kind of broader world of 19th century socialism, because they you know they kind of they said no we need to do this ourselves and we need to do this immediately we can't we can't capture the state and use it we need to destroy it but all of these kind of groups were all intermingled at that point and then across europe and and the americas really these ideas sort of started to spread and in spain 
the first international in the sort of 1860s, it always tended more towards this anarchist side. It was always more inclined to the type of organizations that anarchists preferred, which were very decentered, non-hierarchical federations rather than say political parties or very strict trade unions. Um, now there's a story that, you know, will begin lots of accounts of anarchism in Spain, which is the arrival of Bakunin, who I mentioned before, his friend and comrade, uh, Giuseppe Fanelli, who is an Italian anarchist. And this story, it begins so many books about anarchism in Spain, that he arrived in, in Barcelona and Madrid. You can tell my skepticism already, can't you? He? he arrived <laughs> in Barcelona and Madrid, and he went to talk to the workers there. And although he didn't speak Spanish, his, it, these are the literal words, his expressive mimicry and his kind of passion just won them over to the ideas of anarchism. And from then on, you have this enormous movement. Now, <clears throat> again, I think there's something in that. I'm, he did go, and I'm sure he was very uh, persuasive in his gestures, which is kind of what is suggested. But I think this is a story that plays into a very romantic uh, kind of history of anarchism, which actually appeals to both anarchists and to critics of anarchism who say that it's a bit of a emotional movement rather than a well-thought-out idea. Really what I think is that whilst, you know, Finelli may have helped in putting words to kind of what was already going on or, you know, kind of focusing in, because I think, you know, there's things about the conditions of labor in Spain and about the kind of work, working class culture that kind of chimed with these things already. And, and I think you would have got something similar to this anyway. anyway so from this point, um, the workers movement in Spain, a large part of it, from that point onward, always kind of tended towards this kind of anarchist idea, particularly strong in Barcelona um, and in Andalusia in the south, the big kind of region in the south, particularly Seville and Cadiz. And Cadiz, the neighboring town of Cadiz called Jerez de Frontera, which is where Sherry's from. That was a very big kind of strong area. So this kind of growth of anarchism uh, came at a time uh, of kind of immense political turmoil in Spain. In the 1870s, there was the first Spanish Republic. The, when we talk about the Spanish Civil War, it's the, that's the second Spanish Republic. So this has come in uh, kind of 60 years previous. Um, and anarchists were just one of many groups uh, involved at that point, people trying to change the politics of Spain, trying to you know, emancipate themselves. They had Republican, socialist anarchists, all of these things. And then, and then all of this is kind of curtailed by a military coup, um, which in Spain is called a pronunciamiento. Uh, so a general will step up and decide for the good of the nation, he is going to you know, put an end to all of this turmoil and place someone in charge uh, that, that, that they think will bring order. And this, this happens throughout the 19th century. And I mention it again, because this is, you know, this is similar, this has echoes then in what happens in the 1930s. So you get this pronunciamiento, this general uh, restores the, the Spanish monarchy, the Bourbon monarchy, it's no longer a republic. And then the workers' movement is repressed massively for the next 10 years or so. Then in the 1880s, kind of amazingly, uh, when the anarchist movement is allowed to legally reorganize, it springs up again, almost as if from nothing. Uh, tens of thousands of people join their new federation. But then over the following decade, this then falls apart, actually because of internal divisions within those who support a strategy of kind of appealing to the unions and the workers movement and those who want more kind of direct uh, action they want revolution now and some of those second group end up kind of 
being inspired by this new idea, which is all around in kind of international anarchist circles. Uh, it's called Propaganda by the Deed, um, which is largely uh, public attacks, attacks on the general public. So bombings, dynamite is used quite often, um, or the assassinations of heads of state or senior figures uh, in the government. Often this is seen as the first wave of, of modern terrorism, basically conducted by anarchists all across Europe. Uh, they begin in France, um, you also see them in Italy, um, in the States, you, uh, President McKinley is assassinated by an anarchist, um, and in Spain. Um, but the result of these attacks in Spain is that once again the movement is massively repressed. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of people are sent to prison, tortured, uh, exiled, uh, or executed. So again, it's, it's kind of pushed to the brink again. But then again, at the turn of the century, the movement is allowed to kind of resume activity legally. And once again, it springs up. Um, and this is the point that my work really focuses on, this, this kind of turn of the 20th century. Because it's at this point that I just think, okay, we need to do something different. We've had these cycles of activity and then repression and then activity and repression. We need to kind of think a bit more long term. And so they begin to build what I call a, a sort of cultural infrastructure of the movement that moves beyond just the kind of labor movement. And it looks to ideas such as uh, kind of radical education, um, gender equality, including you know, pushing forward ideas such as birth control, equality of rights under the law. Um, and above all, they, they really expand this, this huge flourishing of their print culture. All over Spain, hundreds and hundreds of anarchist newspapers start getting published. And they use these to share their ideas and the news about what's going on in the local area. And then they also, you know, they use it to communicate all across Spain. So these, this print is flying around. And for a movement that has no formal political party and has no kind of central political control of any sort, this kind of decentered cultural exchange is what I believe, you know, begins to actually form the mass anarchist movement in Spain. And then around 10 years later, the, the CNT, which we'll go on to talk to, the Confederación, Confederación Nacional del Trabajo, the National Confederation of Labour, which becomes the kind of the big anarchist organisation in Spain, pivotal in the Spanish Civil War. That forms in around 1910. And that, you know, that doesn't just come out of nowhere, that builds on this kind of cultural infrastructure, as I say, or foundations um, that are set there in the early 20th century. So that's very brief, um, kind of whiz through the spread of anarchism in Spain. And, and then by that point, you've got anarchist kind of groups and, you know, um, activities and small unions and newspapers all over Spain. Barcelona and Andalusia are still the kind of main heartlands of the movement, but I'd say more or less every urban center will have some sort of anarchist presence. You see it in Madrid, in Valencia, in the northern ports of La Coruña, Bilbao and Gijón. You know, that it is there all across Spain um, by the time that we reach the, the CNT years. Okay. And so after the CNT was founded, it would become one of the largest anarchist organizations in the world. Was there something unique about Spanish anarchism or, or Spanish society that caused such a large number of people to gravitate towards anarchism? That's a, that's a really interesting and important question. It's also quite a, a controversial one uh, amongst historians. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not worth me trying to give you some sort of answer. Um, 
for a long time, people were asking this question and the answer came basically framed in a sort of nationalist or racist basically framework that Spaniards were attracted to this ideology because they were kind of intrinsically against authority. They had a kind of fiery Latin temper and no one would tell them what to do. And that's, that explains this thing. And this is particularly pointed towards um, the Andalusian kind of side of anarchism, the, the, the peasants that, that went to support it. And it's kind of explained as like, these are backwards people. These are semi-African is sometimes the term used because of Andalusia's um, North African kind of heritage. Um, and yeah, but like I say, it's basically racism. And, and that doesn't stop Spaniards from using this trope. They do in the early 20th century. And then that's picked up by a, a British historian called Gerald Brennan, who actually lives in Andalusia near Granada um, in the years prior to the Civil War. And again, he, he kind of plays on this very kind of romantic yet also deeply problematic way of looking at Spanish people as being kind of inclined to anarchism in this way. So you have that. And then Brennan's work is highly, highly influential. Most people who studied the Civil War in English will read Brennan's The Spanish Labyrinth at some point. And so I think that's why that idea kind of remains very strong. And then it gets picked up and kind of transformed into a Marxist analysis by Eric Hobsbawm in another very, very important work called Primitive Rebels. And he kind of takes out that kind of nationalistic explanation. But he says he kind of clings to some of it. Now, Hobsbawm never spoke to uh, any Spanish people. He didn't read the works of Spanish anarchists. His, his source work is reading Gerald Brennan. And he says as much, right, when he's talking about them. And he portrays the anarchists as millenarians, as these kind of people seeking the apocalypse. Again, you, the title of the book, Primitive Rebels. They are kind of misguided. You know, they're unable to form what he sees as a modern kind of labor movement that he would recognize basically a, a socialist or a Marxist one um, because of Spain's industrial development hasn't, uh, you know, hasn't matched that of Northern Europe. And so he says, basically these anarchists are, and he says this, they're, they're, they're basically like Anabaptists, you know, waiting for the apocalypse. And, you know, this is deeply patronizing. And, and as I say, it ignores, you know, what anarchists said about themselves. They saw themselves as a, as a deeply modern, forward-facing movement. It overlooks the fact that the majority of anarchist support in Spain was based in cities and in industrial trade unions. It, as I said, he, he, he doesn't actually do the kind of the source work that you would need to speak about it in that way. So if we try and kind of dispense with that, I've now got to come up with some ideas that it was. And I think really what, what, what Hobsbawm's getting at, and many of the people that then use Hobsbawm, they are taking it as given that anarchism is something that's really odd that it needs to be explained because it's a strange and kind of stupid thing to do, to believe, to kind of go along with. And we need to explain this kind of anomaly. Whereas if we kind of jettison that, if we, if we stop trying to like frame it in terms of like, was it like a good idea or was it modern and just think this existed and it's important and we should study it in and of itself, then we stop needing these kind of big explanations. Like we stop needing to look to the Spanish character or the, um, I don't know, yeah, the economic kind of situation in Spain, which I agree does play into it, but there's also a big socialist movement in Spain. So that doesn't hold up either. So if you look at this time, 
there are anarchist movements everywhere. Spain isn't unique up until the First World War. There are anarch there's a big anarchist movement in France. It's big in Italy. Um, it travels to across to the Americas. There's a strong anarchist presence in many U.S. cities, particularly New York, Cuba, Brazil, Argentina, often carried by migrants. And in this world of the kind of late 19th, early 20th century, in the world of the Second Industrial Revolution, where skilled workers, many of them are being laid off, there is high automation. There's also the first great age of globalization, where capital and goods and people are all kind of interchanging around. An ideology like anarchism, which goes against the idea of the nation state, it argues against kind of hard boundaries between peoples. It's a very pro-internationalist kind of way of looking at the world in a context, not just in Spain, but you know, around the world where democracy is fragile. In Spain, votes are often rigged to favor one of the, the liberal or the conservative parties. You know, there's not much scope for a kind of democratic socialism. The Socialist Party in Spain, although it has a lot of support, only really makes any electoral gains in the 1910s. In this world, you know, to many people, anarchism made sense. You know, this kind of immediate rejection of what was going on around them and, and this idea, you have to go and do it for yourself. And like I say, I think this tapped into to what was going on in Spain. Now, I think this, this, the, the idea that right from the origins, anarchism was a presence in the labor movement in Spain. And I think that matters. Now, why that was the case, I think, is an even bigger question. But the fact that they was kind of there first, I think actually means that it then got ingrained in the traditions of uh, Spanish working class. Anarchism made sense to them. It was something that your dad did, or it's something that the guys down the center did. And, and this kind of longevity kind of gets ingrained. And also, they really, as I mentioned, they really, really make an effort in the early 20th century to expand what they're doing, you know, to not stay within the confines of what they'd always done to push into things like women's rights, into uh, education of like illiterate people. Spain's got a huge illiteracy rate. They really, you know, they do that direct effort. And so more than this kind of quasi-spiritual, religious kind of appeal of anarchism, I think it's that active work of trying to get it out there. So all of that goes in its favor in terms of how it kind of maintains a support, why there's a support base there. But then looking forward, I think, to, to something we might speak about, also, the context where the CNT gets created, again, it's not alone. There are other big anarchist you know, organizations across the world at this point, in France, in Italy, in Argentina. But unlike in France and Italy, Spain doesn't enter the First World War. And so the CNT gets a very different context in which to kind of develop. But perhaps that's something uh, we'd like to move on to. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. 
Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Yeah, uh, first, so you mentioned all these like outreach efforts, I guess, that the anarchists were doing with the educational efforts, the, the feminist sort of movements and things like that. Was, is that different than what was happening in other nations at this time that, that also had anarchist movements? That's a good question. And, and no, like, no, again, it's not unique in trying this. Um, you know, a lot of the inspiration for anarchist activity in Spain comes from France. Um, and so the great kind of anarchist educator in Spain, uh, Francisco Ferrer. Um, there's actually a, a, a school inspired by his ideas set up in New York in 1910, uh, the Francisco Ferrer School. You know, he takes his ideas from this guy, uh, Paul Robin in France. So no, it, it's not unique, but as I said, and I guess it, it kind of shows, you know, ultimately we're not gonna answer this question because you can always push it, but it's like what they did and these, these efforts found a receptive audience in ways that they didn't in a lot of other countries. The, 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 this cultural, these cultural efforts grew and, 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 and had this kind of two-way exchange because it's not just, you know, kind of a few activists like pushing this as you find in say the anarchist movement in Britain, which is tiny, right? It's, it's, it's a small group of intellectuals, you know, trying all their best, but it's not working in Spain there is this reciprocal relationship and it just, and it does really kind of blow up. So yeah, I guess it's kind of, it, it keeps being chicken and egg for me. And I'm, but I, I don't want to rest on one kind of answer for why. Uh, okay. Why Spain. <laughs> that seems reasonable. Um, <laughs> as you mentioned, like this is the period of the first world war, which affected every piece of, of Europe. Uh, Spain did not participate, but it certainly was not without its effects on Spain, especially economically. Um, did that bring more people to anarchism, the, the economic issues that Spain would experience uh, after, I guess, during and after the war? Uh, the short answer is, is yes, very much. So you see a, uh, an exponential growth, you would, you would say, in, in terms of support for the CNT. Um, if we're using that as a, it's a decent marker for, for how popular anarchism is. So the, the CNT is created in 1910. It's then kind of created again in 1911. We don't need to go into that. But then it's immediately, <laughs> immediately repressed, uh, immediately closed down. As soon as they declare themselves an organization, the Spanish state says, no, you're illegal. So it's then up until 1914, it's kind of, it's nothing. It's not really a working organization. Then the war breaks out. And as you say, Spain stays neutral. And the CNT is allowed to return as well at the same time in kind of bits and pieces. What's happened to the anarchist movement though at this point is that they have split massively over the question of the Civil War, uh, the First World War. Um, a large section of anarchists will maintain their internationalism, their position that 
the war is bad, the war is a result of imperialism and capitalism, and we should stay out of it, like, like Spain is doing in a sense, we should, you know, a plague on both your houses. But there is also a kind of a strong contingent, often with some of the more prominent thinkers uh, of the movement, particularly those inspired by France, who go along with the idea that supporting the Entente, supporting the French and British and later USA, um, that is actually the more morally correct position to take. Um, this kind of ties in again with the international scene. Um, Peter Kropotkin, the great kind of anarchist theorist of the time, he, he, he is also, you know, he's pro-France in this regard. And so this causes a big division. What then happens in Spain is they all meet up to try and solve this division. And in classic anarchist style, they get absolutely nowhere with solving that division. But what this meeting allows them to do is, is to actually put them all in the same room together for the first time in, in years. And that's when they decide to reform the CNT. And the CNT quickly then becomes dominated by this neutralist group, the, guys, the people who say support for neither side in the war. And they can have this position because Spain is neutral. In other countries, the First World War shatters socialist and syndicalist movements. In France, the CGT, the big kind of uh, the syndicalist union of France, uh, which the CNT models itself on, um, that comes out in support of the French war effort. And as a result, completely falls apart. Whereas in Spain, the CNT has this opportunity to take this morally correct neutralist position and it, it, it stays intact. Then what you have in Spain is enormous economic upheaval. <clears throat> um, Spain starts supplying both sides in the war um, with weapons and with other kind of materials that it can provide. And we've mentioned before, Spain's very uneven economic development in comparison to Northern Europe. And this causes huge booms and then busts in the Spanish economy. Cities like Barcelona have huge influxes of, of migration, internal migration from the south, um, and, and you know, really expand in terms of size. There's this massive of people, as you say, this, you know, Spain is out of the war, kind of in a military sense, but it's very much bound up with the war in an economic sense. And inflation skyrockets while wages stay the same. There's enormous labor unrest in 1917, um, inspired in part by the Bolshevik revolution, but also because of Spanish uh, kind of economic concerns and CNT membership skyrockets. And you get by the 1919 Congress of the CNT, they are claiming the support of around 800,000 um, affiliates in a country of 20 million. So this is a real kind of high point for the movement. And they're seen as, you know, they pioneer these massive strikes in Barcelona at this point, um, completely shutting down the city's energy system uh, and so on. And so that's when you can really start talking about anarchism in Spain as being you know, really quite exceptional in the world in terms of its strength, um, which is a position that it then maintains right up until the Civil War. So is there a feeling in Spain at this point that, uh, among, among these, these people that like, hey, we are, we are now like the vanguard of this movement internationally? Yeah, they, they are aware of that, which does cause problems with their kind of international, um, you know, comrades, because... Again, being, being good anarchists, no one likes anyone kind of dominating anything. But then you look at the material reality and it is that the CNT can say, well, at an international congress, for example, well, we're speaking on the behalf of almost a million people and you 
British delegate are speaking on behalf of about 40 people. So, you know, <laughs> there's, pro you there's probably more anarchists in Spain at this point than in most of the rest of the world combined. Yeah, and, and they are aware of it. And it does, it does cause, you know, friction. But also, I mean, as you can imagine, 1917 and then the following years of the Russian Revolution are causing all sorts of turmoil in the international left. You know, these distinctions, in, in fact, you know, between who's an anarchist and who's a socialist, who's a communist, you know, they were blurred anyway, but they start, people just start kind of, you know, going all over the place. You know, anarchists are initially very supportive of what's going on in Russia, but then generally sort of turn away and they, you know, there's, there's all sorts of flux. So you're right to say that, yeah, there is a sense of the CNT by 1921, two is starting to look like really the only kind of viable um, mass anarchist organization. Um, the Fora in Argentina, which would be, it's a, you know, a similar sort of size has started to break apart by this point. So, so yeah, but then, also, we, we don't need to talk about it in depth, but then we have another of these uh, pronunciamientos or military coups uh, in 1923. Um, partly a response to the mass labor unrest in Barcelona and this kind of street war that's going on between anarchist militias and um, gangs hired by employers and they're, they're kind of shooting each other in the street. Um, and again, we get this kind of from the Spanish right, this feeling of, of chaos, the need for someone to come and step in. And um, then you get General uh, Primo de Rivera step in and we have another seven, eight years of military dictatorship. So the CNT is once again um, kind of banned, uh, made clandestine. So really then, you know, the world looks bleak, I guess, for international anarchism in, in that decade. Mm -hmm. Uh, so you mentioned this this new government is formed, but then uh, around 1931, I think the the second republic is is formed. Was you know coming out of what they experienced in the back half of the 1920s, but what was the reaction among uh, the CNT or the Spanish anarchists to this new republic? That's a really good, really good question. Again, it's um, so through the the 1920s through this dictatorship, um, which. Primo de Rivera um, yeah, modeled in some ways on Mussolini. You know, he tried to make it this kind of corporatist, top-down sort of style, bringing in sort of labor unions and, and kind of trying to get, make everyone get along in the kind of top-down military way. Um, and in that is included the socialists. The socialist trade union are, are included in the, in the uh, government in some places, but the CNT isn't. So they have been on the outside and they're also quite embittered towards the, the socialists, even more so than normal, um, but who they see as kind of being sellouts. Um, so there is that scepticism, you know, there is a kind of ingrained scepticism within anarchism when the Republic becomes, is, is declared, you know, in theory, anarchists should be saying all governments are as bad as one another. It's just a different form, but it would be a lie to say that anarchists went out in the streets celebrating like hundreds of thousands of other Spaniards when the Republic was declared. And the CNT actually plays a very interesting role at this point and through the Republic. Because again, in principle, you know, anarchists uh, in Spain have always called for their members to abstain from elections. It's a, it's a farce, it does more damage than good. Um, you know, 
don't, don't do it. You're a mug if you do. Um, but through the major elections during the Republic, there are three. Uh, 1931, they don't put out their don't vote campaign, which is about as close as they can get to endorsing vote for your socialist or Republican candidate. And so, you know, it's seen by many as a sort of tacit approval. Now, then there is this big question within the CNT. What do we do in relation to this new government that has been set up? What do we do? How do we operate in relation to the Second Republic? Do we, and this is where one branch of the, the CNT, the more trade union orientated side of it, the more they're called kind of gradualists. They, they, they look to do incremental change in a way. I mean, they're still anarchists, so they're still quite, you know, we say they're, they're gradualists. They're still probably more radical than any kind of trade union you can imagine at the moment. But compared to some of their comrades, they're seen as the moderates. And they want to work with the socialist and Republican coalition that comes in in the early 1930s. They think that, you know, gains can be made for the union in that way. And then you have, you know, smaller uh, sections of people who are called purists, or people who are, you know, full on anarchism, no compromise. You know, they, they say, no, you know, the, the Republic's a bad idea. And you also have a growing group of people called insurrectionists or voluntarists, they're called, who who kind of take their inspiration in some ways from the Bolsheviks and, and say that, you know, we need to push the revolution forward through insurrection. So these are the, these are the currents which sort of emerge under the, the Second Republic. And after the first couple of years, the Republic really is seen as a letdown, not just by anarchists, but, you know, across the board, particularly amongst the, the socialist mass support that the Republic has. And the Republic needs, really, to to sustain itself. They have a very limited view, I think, of, of politics, particularly by the 1930s. These um, mainly Republican, middle-class Republican politicians in power, they seem to think that they can change Spanish society by enacting laws. And that's kind of it. You know, that if you, if you say it, it will happen. So they know that there is an acute problem with land in Spain, that the, the land needs to be you know, um, rethought out. There's these huge estates with massive land magnates and then also like mass, mass rural poverty. Um, you know, it's known. And so they think that just by saying that the land will be redistributed, it will be. But of course, there's massive pushback from power holders in local areas. And this is repeated in lots of other things they do. These kind of heavy-handed attempts to uh, modernize Spain, many of them, you know, very worthy, um, but they, they ultimately don't really achieve very much. And so this then, for the anarchists, even those that were kind of prepared to sort of compromise a bit, this is starting to fade after a couple of years of the Republic. And then you reach a period where the, those advocating this kind of insurrectionary style start to say, right, well, you know, we, we had it your way for a year or two, so now we're gonna try this. And you have a string of insurrections prompted by the CNT um, in Catalonia, in Aragon, and then very famously in the town in um, southern Spain, uh, in the Cadiz province called Casas Viejas, where this, this small village, you know, they, they hear through their CNT contacts that the libertarian communism has arrived. And so they, they, they take over the town, they burn the records, they, they declare, you know, anarchism has arrived. 
and they are brutally uh, repressed by the Republican state, by you know, those acting under orders of the Republican Socialist Coalition. And it's a, it's a trend that we then see through the 1930s. You know, the right in Spain, you may, you may find this in conversation with, with, with others on the, on the Republic and the Civil War. You know, they always make out that they're being persecuted by the Republic. And the Republic is, is, is a left-wing uh, experiment that is, that is um, demanding that they change their ways. But if you look on the ground, really, the groups that are violently persecuted by the Republic are the anarchists, basically, the hard left. The, the, the state always comes down harder on that um, side of things. So then we talked about these elections and what the CND, CNT does. It's very interesting. In the uh, following elections, following some of these events, following this disappointment in the Republic, you do get an active abstention campaign come out from the CNT. And they say, we're not, we're not doing it. Like, we're, we're um, you know, don't vote. We've seen how bad the Republicans and Socialists are in power, don't vote. And, you know, there are other reasons for this, but the result is that the right win those elections. Um, which, and I don't think it's the only deciding factor, but I think it's important, you know, in certain constituencies, the CNT are actively opposing um, these kind of, the co-left on, on the left. It's then massively repressed, uh, you know, following a further insurrection in uh, Asturias, um, which you may be talking about with other people, I won't go into it in too much depth here, but anarchists are involved in the Asturian revolution of 1934. And really after this, you know, the left of all different shapes and sizes in Spain is, is repressed uh, by the kind of the, the, the right wing government in Spain. And then, we come to 1936, early 1936, and the third of these kind of three major elections that I talk about. And again, as in 1931, you get the CNT not calling for abstention again to, to support what has now become called the Popular Front um, election ticket, which is, tries to assure that uh, socialists, republicans, communists of, of two different parties across Spain um, hope they're hoping really that, that, that they get in not least on this on a, on a very serious question for the anarchist which is um that of political prisoners There's, there are there are thousands of people in prison and so if nothing else they can get behind the popular front because they are promising to release the prisoners of the last few years and so i think that gives them a kind of a reason to say okay well you know these are these are better than the others so uh, during this period you, you talk about you know there's there's all this political activity that the the cnt kind of is but sometimes kind of isn't uh sort of interacting with what was the organization like of the cnt at this point so, so there is a national organization and then but how did the that how does that national uh organization relate to like local groups um and, and in times especially of like repression, like what does that look like? Are they just coming in and arresting the, the leaders and shipping them off to prison or, or, or what? Well, yes, they are doing that frequently, <laughs> which doesn't help for kind of organizational stability. Um, but also like in trying to kind of adhere to anarchist kind of principles of organization, the CNT is, is highly decentralized. Some scholars will say it's actually you know, it's not correct to speak of the CNT as a single organization because while there is an, a, a national executive to some extent, it has very little power and it is very frequently changed. Like they have a very, you know, they have a very quick 
kind of changing of roles position. They don't, they are very wary of letting individuals or kind of groupings within um, the CNT uh, kind of hold on to power uh, and kind of dominate it. So it's, it, it does vary from, from place to place how the CNT operates. In Asturias, the Asturian CNT is quite um, famously like keen to compromise and work with other left-wing groups, which is why you see uh, CNT involvement in the Asturian revolution of 1934. Whereas at the same time, the Catalan CNT are saying that they shouldn't be doing that, you know, because they have a more kind of hardline stance on that kind of activity. So it, it, it can be, it, I, it, well, it's true of all political organizations, but I think particularly um, the CNT, that to speak of it in that way is a useful shorthand, but actually we are kind of looking at several different things going on at the same time. How it operates as an organization is that it's designed to be as um, adhered to the autonomy of its kind of constituent parts as possible. Um, often resolutions will be agreed, but um, different like local or regional sections can um, disagree and kind of you know not participate in what they say it's quite hard for them to um, have a single line on anything I suppose which is why again these these kind of fractures that we see um, you know between those broader tendencies of you know we should work with the Republic or we should do these insurrections you know it's, it's hard to say which one of those has the any the authority to to do that to act and you actually see um, in the early 1930s, actually a large chunk of the CNT unions uh, split uh, and, and they form what's uh, kind of, they, they, call, they call themselves largely syndicalist rather than anarchist. I don't want to get too bogged down in lots of these kind of isms and terms, but really that means that their priority is the trade union. And to the extent that they're, some of them willing not only to work with political groups, but actually become a political party themselves, which is anathema really to the to the, the more anarchist kind of orientated sections of the group. So this split really kind of, hand, you know, like undermines the CNT's strength, particularly in this period of repression. You know, they, they, they you know, they've lost thousands of members. Uh, they're being repressed. It, it, you know, again, it feels like one of these dark kind of periods for anarchism. And it's actually, again, we talked about. Um, coming to some sort of sense of agreement with other groups on the left at the time of the elections of 1936. Um, also, this kind of reconciliation happens uh, within the anarchist movement at this point as well, that the, the, the groups that have left actually come back in um, in the spring of 1936, which I think actually plays into a broader context of Spain in general. Not to say that the civil war is inevitable, but you, you definitely see lots of groups kind of picking their side in a way they, they they're putting aside earlier differences to see the the larger picture because i think it is clear to a lot of people that something some sort of major reckoning is coming and and when it comes down to it anarchists and syndicalists can work together anarchists and socialists can just about get on you know and that's what's happening in in 1936 as groups are starting to mobilize maybe not in preparation for a civil war, but, you know, 
something's happening, it's on the streets, politics has, has, has gone onto the streets and you get this coalescence of, of forces at that time. So, so you mentioned sort of organizationally how they're sort of coalescing as, as things begin to develop in 1936. Um, were there other preparations for, for the Spanish anarchists in terms of maybe more radical action? Like, was there ever a, a point, I guess, during this entire sort of uh, period where they were planning or contemplating their own revolution uh, and actively moving towards that? Yeah, it's a really, it's an interesting and again, kind of controversial question because uh, I think not in any sort of serious way um, did they believe that that would be possible. Though, you know, if you read some of the speeches and rhetoric, maybe, you know, that they themselves said that they are, you know, posturing and saying, yes, the revolution is, is imminent. And these insurrections often, their goal was to push the dial forward. You know, they didn't think like an insurrection in uh, an industrial town in Catalonia w was going to kind of topple the state, but they thought maybe there would be this um, almost domino-ish effect or kind of growing um, sense of revolution. That said, I don't think that there were kind of explicit written plans out for, you know, this is how we're going to make the revolution. What they did do through the 1930s was form many areas, uh, these groups called defense committees. So these are kind of groups of dedicated anarchists who basically know where weapons are, uh, know what to do in the event of a revolution, or as many of them saw was very likely uh, a right-wing coup. Um, you know, knew how to build barricades, um, knew who to, which other groups to talk to. So there is a, a sense, and there's the title of a very good book by Augustine Guillaume called Ready for Revolution, is that I, I wouldn't hold, and it, the, the reason I'm, I'm hesitant to say that they were planning a kind of mass revolution is because that, that was the rationale or the excuse given by the military and the right for launching their coup was that the, the, the Spain was on the brink of a left-wing revolution therefore um, we are justified in stepping in which I, I don't I don't buy at all you know I, I, so that's why I'm, I'm, I'm I, you know I don't want to go wholehearted certainly they would have liked one but whether that's the same as that they were planning one is different and you get in as at the, at the, at the um, Congress where these two groups um, of the anarchist movement coming together in, in 1936 in Zaragoza, you actually get for the first time really a, a detailed statement on what they think the revolution will look like and what the post-revolutionary society will look like, what, what, what they call it libertarian communism, what, what libertarian communism will look like. And it's, it's a fascinating document. Lots of people are quite skeptical about it and say, why on earth are they writing this, this you know, multi-page document on which includes free love or you know what to do about um tools on the farm in the event of a revolution when you know this is like two months before the civil war starts but that's what they wanted to do and they wanted to to, to have an idea of what it was they were fighting for if they were to fight so in the weeks prior to um the outbreak of the civil war they are amongst i would say that the earliest groups to identify that this coup from the right is going to happen like the, that um that you know they they are demanding arms from the republican state they are saying you know they are they are begging really for 
workers to be armed to put down what they see as the fascist coup, which they, they know is imminent. And they're not alone. Like, um, leaders of the Spanish right are standing up in parliament and saying, we are going to do a coup. So, <laughs> you know, but, but the, the, again, it, it goes back to the politicians of the Second Republic, many of whom, you know, think that they can just avert this kind of thing if they legislate against it or they, they kind of cross it's their very fingers. Very optimistic, I guess. Yeah, I guess that's one way of putting it, yeah. But, but at the same time, these Republican politicians are justifiably um, worried about what will happen if they do arm the, the workers of the anarchist and the socialist movement. Because as we see, when the war breaks out and the workers arm themselves in large part, um, then, then you do get uh, a revolution in northeastern Spain, at least. But you know, there are revolutionary times across most of Spain at that time. Uh, but to say that what then happened followed any sort of prearranged plan, aside from um, the coordination of these defence committees, the actual the actual resistance to the initial coup of the Spanish Civil War. Um, in July 1936, I would say that is coordinated. Is that that is you know that is anarchist workers knowing what to do in this scenario. Chris Elam, a brilliant scholar of uh, of anarchism in Spain, you know, um, talks about how in Barcelona the sirens of the factories, which are used normally to call the workers to work, you know, the, the kind of almost like a school bell kind of idea. Um, they know the anarchists know that when they're ringing them when the CNT are ringing them that means prepare yourselves and arm yourselves so there is you know this isn't just a spontaneous uprising at the outbreak of the civil war but it's them in the months that follow I would say that isn't that isn't really fleshed out prior to the civil war happening okay uh, excellent uh thank you for all your answer answers today uh so people can find your book uh, about the rise of the anarchist movement in Spain uh, out there on the internet. What is uh, the title of that and a brief description uh, maybe? That's called Print Culture and the Formation of the Anarchist Movement in Spain. I did suggest a snappier title to Routledge, but they wanted the, uh, the very descriptive term of it. It seems um, to happen a lot in history, in history topics uh, in books. I had some great ideas for it, but no, they were like, no, we'd like you to say what it is. Um, you can find that. You can also find, I've, uh, I did a, a summary, a short summary uh, of the anarchist movement during the Civil War in the Palgrave Handbook of Anarchism, which is, which is a nice sort of accessible text as well. Okay, uh, excellent. Uh, thank you. And uh, have a nice day. Thank you, Wesley. Cheers. All the best. If you would like to read more of Dr. Yeoman's work, I've put a link in the show notes that will redirect you to my site where I've listed out some of the things that I read from Dr. Yeoman to prepare for this interview.